Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Adam Butler of Resolve Asset Management Global. Our very special guest is Kim Shannon, founder and co-CIO of Siona Investment Managers, lead portfolio manager on Siona's large cap, all cap, and focused Canadian value strategies, as well as co-lead on Siona's high conviction strategy. In her journey as a portfolio manager and as a purist bottom-up value investor, and with the application of her proprietary take on value investing, she and her team turned one of Canada's oldest mutual funds, which at the time had $40 million in assets under management, into Canada's largest equity mutual fund at CI Investments, earning her a reputation as one of Canada's preeminent market wizards. In 2002, she founded Siona Investment Managers to establish herself and her colleagues as independent investment managers in the domain of fundamental bottom-up value investing. It's noteworthy to mention that the last 12 years have been unkind to value investors and fundamental analysts. With value investing coming back into focus as investors set their eyes on quality, growth, competition, and risk, we couldn't think of a better guest than Kim Shannon to lead today's conversation. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. It's terrific to have you on Raise Your Average. Welcome. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks for the beautiful introduction. I, I liked it. You've had a terrific career and, and a reputation that precedes itself. Um, Kim, to kick things off, uh, for those of us who don't know you, please tell us about the arc of your career, your, your background, your experience, and what you're up to these days. Terrific. Thank you. Well, I started um, in the um, industry almost 40 years ago, um, and it was a very different environment, you can imagine, than it is today. And, and certainly, my path as a woman coming into even business, much less investing, was a little bit on the convoluted side. It wasn't a traditional career path um, by any stretch of the imagination, and it certainly wasn't a great environment for anyone to think about entering Canadian equities. Because back in uh, the early 80s, we had interest rates that were at extremely high levels. Um, and, you know, why would anybody buy risky equities offering a nine and a half percent average return when you could roll T-bills at the time um, at 13 percent, which is what I did in one job back then? Um, and so very many few people entered um, equity investing. But, it, you know, the way the world works is often entering a field when no one else wants to enter it you know, gives you a clear and open opportunity set overall. Um, and my, I started off um, in, uh, in insurance, where I worked for approximately 12 years managing internal insurance reserves um, with some really great practitioners that really taught me how to invest. In particular, John D. Tommaso was an exceptionally good value manager more of a cigar butt value manager than I than I am. Do um, you tend? I think that everyone has their own flavor of value based on their own personality, and I I was 
wanting to add a little bit less risk in my portfolios for for clients than John D. Tomasa was willing to do. Um, and then I moved to an investment counseling firm to learn the craft of having external clients and interaction, interacting with external clients. Now, when I was at the insurance company, I'd started managing segregated mutual funds. So I'd entered the retail space and had a pretty good track record in those early days for seg funds. But, you know, it wasn't until I was at this investment counseling for me and my partners did I actually get exposed to both institutional clients um, as well as mutual fund clients. And I took over that mythical, you know, old, the, the Canada's oldest Canadian equity mutual fund, the Canadian Investment Fund, which started in 1932. But it fallen on hard times with managers that hadn't done a great job for it and was down to 40 million and and through uh, good stock selection skills and and obviously a good market for value um, you know really built the track record and then I was lured away to go join uh, Merrill Lynch in its second return to Canada and uh, built up their asset management their retail asset management division in Canada and six months later, my client Spectrum United followed me. Um, and then we were eventually sold to CIBC. And within six months um, of that sale, my largest client Spectrum United was sold to CI Mutual Funds. And that's when the genesis of Siona occurred. So back in 2002, um, I launched um, Siona and I, I launched it as a sole proprietor because, you know, it was known that CIBC was fairly litigious. So um, didn't want to give them any reason to do that to me. Um, and, uh, you know, built up the firm, uh, hired a bunch of young people and built up the firm. And now the firm's, you know, this year will be turning uh, 20 years old um, overall. So that's a bit of the, the career path. You know, and along the way, I have to say the environment was also very different back then. If we talk about male pale and stale in asset management today, it was much more so that back then. There was very few women in the field. I mean, there's very few women um, in asset management today. Um, the numbers are 1.5% of AUM are run by women today and you know even fewer with women with senior ownership or or founding of firms overall um but you know it's a i think that you know asset management is a meritocracy so i think back then it was even harder to get in i think it's it's much more open and people are very interested in in building diversity in their organizations um but you know, it is a meritocracy. And so if you're if you're capable and talented and focused and motivated and interested, I think it's very possible to do well in the uh, field today. That was great. Yeah, um, I, I'd love to, to hear whether how you talk to young women who are considering to come into the industry nowadays so i mean obviously the industry's evolved our culture and society and norms have evolved meaningfully over the last 20 30 40 years um but i mean 
you, you know, the industry is still the industry, right? So I just, I'm curious as you look at the state of the industry today, um, what kind of guidance do you give young women who, you know, what are the trade-offs? What are the, what fits that you, that you talk to them about? Right. I think it's um, very similar to almost any other professional services job. And, and when I say that, I'm talking about lawyers, accountants, um, medical professionals, engineers. Uh, you know, it's, it's that kind of field. Um, you are dealing with clients. You, so I think there's a, a lot that appeals to women. It, it involves both sides of the brain. And, and for a lot of intelligent people, that's um, very, very appealing. So on the one hand, it demands um, the skills of being fairly analytical, um, fascinated by ideas. Um, you know, I, I personally don't think that it demands enormous mathematical skills. Um, I think it needs rudimentary math in terms of you know, add, subtract, multiply, divide, and understands percents and relationships. You know, um, and that I think most intelligent people can handle. Um, but I think that the, the other side of the business, and particularly in investing, it's about being very focused on, on people. And that's on the analytical side. Because I think markets are as much driven by human emotions as they are by fundamentals. And I think when you come across investors that are just purely fundamentalists, I think they're missing a lot of the picture because why does the market one day, you know, trade at euphoric highs and then sometimes the next day trade at very, very depressed lows. I lived through October 19, you know, 1987 when the market fell, you know, over 20% in one day. So you have to understand that those um, that activity is possible and, and it's not fundamentals that created that kind of change. But there's also a human side to the business. When you're interviewing management teams, you know, the more, the, the better the questions you ask, the more humanistic you are, the more comfortable you are with engaging a CEO or a CFO and, and really can pull out of them what the drivers are in their business and get more frankness and less aloofness out of them, you'll get more information. And then there's this, the, the side of selling. Everyone has to sell. To get from being an analyst to a portfolio manager, to a CIO, to a founder of a business, you have to be a seller. So you, you're selling at, at so many different levels. You're selling yourself to your bosses, um, to your clients, in order to get promoted, to get your job. And um, you also have to sell to your customers and your clients. Um, so there's so many skills that, that take in the people skills, which I think women have a tendency to excel at overall. And, and I think it's very needed in the industry because the, the, the profile of the average portfolio manager is that they're introverted, that they're very intelligent, they're very analytical, um, but that they're not as interested in communicating with clients. So to have that broad skill base um, uh, leads to a lot of success in the industry. 
And so I think that it's a great field for women. And I think because a lot of the work does not need to be done in the office. A lot of it is about research, getting home, putting, you know, if you have children, I, I have a 22-year-old now. Um, my daughter was two years old when I started my business. Um, and, you know, you're when you come home, you put your child to bed and you can get you can do more work in the evening. Um, I do have to say that the marketing across the country could be a bit demanding. And so, you know, there will be a need if you're successful to have childcare. Uh, but the other side of this industry is it generally re remunerates well enough to do so. So uh, it, it all worked out for, for me overall. But I think in the end, it's about people finding a career that, that really suits their personality. Um, and I, I have no question in my mind that this is um, this can be an excellent career for women. It, it reminds me of my my own uh, daughter who is twenty three as well, and and she, you know, has has exposure to finance, and she was uh, given the opportunity to participate in a program called Girls Who Invest. So if there are uh, mm -hmm. some some ladies considering this field. Uh, this program is uh, by Seema um, Hingarani. I'm probably mispronouncing her name, um, but it's a, she's she's the managing director at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, and um, her finding was, I'm sure, much like yours, you, you know, sort of the only woman around the table, and um, they started trying to get uh, young women involved in sort of the post. Uh, college, post-undergrad, so finish your undergrad now, come and come to the investment yes. management world. And what they found was it was too late. And so the program is for uh, young women in, you know, sort of second year of their university or college, whether you're in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or Canada. Uh, it's totally uh, gratis, so it's paid for um, and funded. <clears throat> Obviously, there's an application process that's pretty rigorous. But what, they, what she found, uh, and I found so interesting, is that there, it's not the math that prevents the women from entering the field. In fact, what happens is females who enter the field end up going the CPA route rather than the CFA route to sort of summarize the, the, mm -hmm. the, the angle. So they, they're capable in all the mathematical machinations. They're just uncomfortable a little bit with the male-dominated field to some degree and the lack of sort of the the support network and the leadership that they could look up to as successes that they could follow in the footsteps of. So, you know, I would I would suggest that if there are some young women in those uh, earlier years of university and they're considering this as a path that they look into that program and make application to that is it, it is an expanding program. And I think meaningful in getting those changing the mindsets early enough to make this career opportunity um, a priority for them. Right. I, I think you've just uh, hit the nail on the head and I am familiar with that organization. It just started about five or six years ago. It's pretty impressive. Um, but women need mentors. They need to be able to model after somebody that they can identify with. And uh, when I entered the industry, that was a real challenge. But I, I did find some successful women, albeit not in the field. Um, that were able to mentor me and encourage me and suggest how to make it work in, in, um, in their lives. So I'm, I'm an organ, an op, uh, an organization like this will be critical in the early stages. And in Canada, we do have women in capital markets. 
um, as well, which has been encouraging, you know, throughout their entire tenure that women consider fields in the finance field overall. Excellent. Yeah. Go ahead, Pierre. So, yeah, I, I, th oh, I think, like, I mean, I think the business is, you know, this, this is a business where, you know, you really like, I don't think you can get into, for example, retail advisory anymore, except under the wing of a senior advisor. And mm -hmm. uh, only because the way that the industry has gone, it's really, it has really migrated away from transactional, uh, from commissions and into the, uh, the fee-based realm. Or it's, it's, you know, at least it's in a major transition away from that transactional realm. And, and so, you know, and, and to your point, Kim, which is, was that, you know, you have to wear so many hats in this business. You can't just be the investment manager, the portfolio manager, or the advisor. You have to be a counselor. You have to be a marketer. You have to be a salesperson. You have to be all of those things that go to make a business successful. And when you're getting started, especially uh, whether it's as a portfolio manager or as an advisor, you really do need to um, have uh, you really do need to be you, you need you, you need to be all those things all at once all the time and <laughs> and so so you know sometimes you end up being really good at one of those things and terrible at the others or if you really set your heart my heart on it so that's why the mentor is very important right I mean the mentorship is is critical in terms of of you know sort of demarking those priorities early on as opposed Absolutely. to being either a really good, you know, you could be a great salesperson and a terrible money manager. And, you know, a lot of people have made it in the business, uh, you know, being that. And, but it's exceptional when you can be both a really great marketer and a salesperson and a great investment manager altogether. Yeah. Uh, yes. And counselor and, you know, a good listener and a good friend to, to your clients. How, um, how have you seen that? the differences between dealing with, so your, your career is, has spanned a whole number of different relationships. And so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm interested in the, in what were your strategies as you walked forward in, in your career, moving from, you know, sort of insurance captive, then to, you know, a little bit more OPM or other people's money. And then also the OPM going to retail as well as to institutional. And what are some of the differences and the nuances that that you've picked up when you're communicating with your clients that are that are slightly different in these domains? And how have you capitalized on those insights? You know, those that's a really excellent question. And I also think it it speaks to what an issue you wrote, raised earlier, which is that you have to start building the skill base earlier. And, you know, there's lots of talk out there. Um yeah, the tipping point, I think, expressed it fairly well, Malcolm Gladwell, where he said, in order to be world-class at anything, you really should have been doing it for the last 10 years to get up to that level. And, you know, when you look back, it's, it's a lot of the volunteer work you did earlier in your career that built a broad skill base. And, and then you bring a problem-solving mindset into the game. And the industry is constantly changing. And so when you're, you're facing problems, you're, you end up dealing with them. Like for women back then, and I still think to some degree today, you're having to deal with the fact that people don't um, 
there was a certain level of sexism and, you know, a non-belief that you could go all the way. So you had to um, decide you were going to defeat that problem. And, and what kind of way were you going to defeat that problem by working really hard and, and paying attention to what made other people very successful and then trying to build that skill base. And you just keep pushing that envelope over and over again and, and then and seeing solutions. Like, you know, one, one career burden for myself was getting my organization was having a lot of difficulty making me lead portfolio manager. And I had read that one of the ways of inspiring a firm to promote you was to embarrass them by you becoming the leader of an industry organization. So I became the president of the Toronto Society of Financial Analysts. Um, you know, that, that, you know, if the world was seeing me in a, in a leadership role, it was a little embarrassing if my organization wasn't as well. And so you keep, you know, noodling the problems and solving them. You know, at another stage of my career, I heard that portfolio managers sat um, on charity investment boards and got to hire and fire external managers. And I had done a lot of board work my whole university um, career, and I'd always done volunteerism. Um, so I uh, decided, you know, I worked at getting on those boards, and then I got to see what it felt like to sit on the other side of the table. And, and therefore, it makes you a better communicator to that group. But I think it's about sensitivity, understanding, you know, who people are. And so, so you know, by sitting on, um, on, on other boards, you really get to see the communication, how to, how to communicate better to those groups. And, and it's about understanding your client base, what their needs are, and speaking and selling to all those levels. Um, as a portfolio manager selling into um, a major retail channel, the selling point is at so many levels. You are selling to um, the gatekeepers of the organization. You are also selling to a financial advisor um, that you are going to do well for, for their client base and, and not take on a lot of risk. And then ultimately, you have, you're ultimately a lot of things you're saying and doing, you're being very thoughtful about the ultimate end client and what they need and want so that your product will be you know, attractive over a very long period of time. So um, those are all, I think that problem solving skill and thinking ahead at all the stakeholders that you're addressing um, is, is part of that whole problem solving that, that leads to a successful career overall. Um, and I, I have, I have an interesting side story that uh, I was, um, I was a volunteer birth control counselor um, in university and then as volunteer work afterwards. And I felt that the, um, the opportunity of, of, a, of discussing and helping young people decide what method of birth control suited their lifestyle um, the best um, was um, an early teaching for me about the sales role. And uh, so, you know, all those unusual experiences of volunteerism can all contribute later on to 
um, parts of the success of your career. Amazing. And I, I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to dig into the whole value investing complex and that sort of stuff. So maybe we can shift gears now and jump into that side of that, of the, um, of the program. Yeah. And uh, I was going to risk the segue of um, <laughs> Blaxis to you. Italian, <laughs> <laughs> the, the selection of, of companies in their portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's yeah, one way to do it. I, I, I wonder if, yeah, we, we, yeah, yeah, sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> well, certainly there is, there is a nice setup from Kim for under, you know, sort of looking in the beginning of your career, the opportunity set, the opportunity set now. And how have you spanned that arc as you've had to adapt value investing to remain successful and to continue to be relevant in this, in this domain? And what are the challenges today versus then? And how are you approaching that and, and get into the nuts and bolts? Cause I think there's a lot of listeners that are going to want to know about that too. Perfect. Um, and it allows me to back up and hit on one of my favorite topics, which is financial market history. Um, we um, have just, I hope exited one of the longest and deepest underperformance periods for value. Um, and the history um, of value versus growth, goes back to 1926. There just isn't enough good granular data to be able to you know, break up the market between value and growth uh, prior to that time horizon. And this is the third major period of underperformance of value versus growth. Um, but all the rest of the time, value has done better than growth. So the long-term history is that over 80% of the time, value beats growth. But when it doesn't, it's very painful. And it, it, it's, it's natural because markets reflect human nature. And the pendulum of what is interesting to the market um, swings back and forth over time. Just like you see in politics, you go from political left to political right. There's so much in life that keeps flipping and changing. Um, people want to try something different, and the world evolves a little bit and tests the other side of the equation. And so we've just had an, an incredible major growth phase, but it was the longest and deepest. And uh, so, you know, no one in, as value, in value management has, has faced this kind of challenge um, that we are aware of in the past using this investment approach. And uh, so it's been pretty brutal for the practitioners in the field. Um, and a lot of us attempted to adapt by, um, you know, moving a little bit more into quality, a little less rigorous on, on certain value factors. Uh, price to book became a little less relevant be and partly due to account some accounting changes that happened out there. Um, and so a little less reliant on that, leaning a little bit more heavily on other investment tools and just sharpening your pencil and hunkering down and trying to do, you know, an even better job and, and by getting less distracted, um, that helped in terms of, uh, focusing on the job, but, you know, it does look like the pendulum wants to sweat, turn again. We have reached a bit of an extreme, um, in valuation. And the market seems to have uh, 
um, is is heading back. And um, and I, if you don't mind reminding me of the fullness of your question, because I segued out and I want to the core well, of just, the question. I think you you're provided. you're answering it beautifully. It, yeah. And it's it's so that was then, and this is now. We've had this swing, and have have you taken the opportunity to adapt? How have, how are you, how is Kim Shannon and Sonoma approaching the challenges and how have you adjusted and how do you continue to remain uh, relevant and competitive? And then maybe mm -hmm. some of the secret sauce that goes along with that. <laughs> well, and maybe, just, maybe start with the sort of core framework, Kim. It's like, sure. how do you think about value overall and valuing companies? And then maybe, you know, contrast different, a few different, kind of prototype value styles where you kind of fit in and then how you have, how your spin on it is a little bit uh, different, why you think that those differences are important and then how they've evolved over time um, in response to this wacky okay, great. that we've been in the last decade. Well, there's a lot of questions in there. So let's hope I, I touch on a lot of them. <laughs> and, and partly it comes yeah. <laughs> down to a philosophical pro, you know, approach overall that, um, you know, value managers believe that, you know, the market um, is, is irrational. It's that uh, we don't, we can't possibly believe that the market is efficient. Um, otherwise, how would you be able to get excess returns uh, from stocks overall? And uh, we believe that from time to time, stocks, individual stocks will get too inexpensive, too cheap, well below intrinsic value. And we we want to you know own those stocks as long as the risk factors are acceptable, and then patiently wait for them to go back to intrinsic value. And and I think the core belief that value managers believe vis-a-vis -vis growth managers is that you know growth is um you know is uh, more people intuitive intuitively. Um, understand growth, want to play with growth, you know, buy the best firms with the biggest ROEs and the biggest earnings growth, but they generally are fairly expensive to own. And if you, if I've often, I've seen many studies in the past that show that, you know, growth stocks do really well until they don't. And, and then they start to come down and, and that, that when they do start to fall down, when the growth stops, when that growth really starts to roll over, the uh, the valuations can come down a lot and be very painful. So, you know, you may have a growth manager doing a great job and then suddenly you have, it doesn't even have to be a value versus growth game. You just have one or two individual stocks in the portfolio that, that stop growing and they really pull down the results. Where value investing is, is more incremental. You're, you're buying stocks in aggregate that are cheaper than the market, and then slowly over time, they, they crawl back up towards their intrinsic value fairly consistently um, if you've done your homework well enough and then get you the returns and do it with very low risk. And um, I think that that style of investing, which historically has been reasonably consistent um, and, and traditionally had provided very consistent returns to investors, um, that people were willing to give up some upside in the strong markets to, um, to do really well traditionally in the weak markets and, and do it with less risk overall. And uh, 
So that was the thesis and my belief system about about value investing and why I was comfortable doing it. I think it also suited um, my personality overall and the team that I built. Um, so that was kind of the underlying fundamental and thought process around value. You had multiple other questions there, so if you don't no, mind. Well, you, you've said intrinsic value a few times, so maybe if you don't mind, dig a little deeper in how you define value. Yes. Well, um, we what we do is we start with a fairly quantitative model. We do screening at the beginning, and we run through a very um, uh, crude calculation where we're looking at three key factors to determine whether a, what the value of a stock is and then comparing it to the current stock price. So we're looking, we're certainly looking for the earnings machine capability of the firm. But the three factors I think focus in on, on really on, on factors that interact. So I think it's a very useful tool, not for all stocks and not for all sectors, but for a lot of stocks in the marketplace, I would say at least two thirds, most of the time it's a very good tool. And it starts with book value. Now book value is a little less important today than it has been in the past. I'm not willing to throw it out. I think that over time it, you know, when you, when you adjust for some of the accounting changes, um, you can uh, deal with it, but it's, it's trying to capture uh, the balance sheet of the firm. And in a very low, um, a, a ch the changes in book value affect the multiple that you're going to give to the ROE. So, you know, book value times ROE gives you earnings per share. Um, and, that, and, and as a value manager, we're always trying to look for the normalized earnings, the normal, what's the center of where this stock's likely to go over time. And that's sort of a key element. So if book value gets destroyed by write-downs um, or gets inflated, it affects the ROE. So they, 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 they ebb and flow with each other. You still, you're still going to come out with the right uh, normalized ROE over time for the firm, the earnings machine capability. And then we also use, then you know, when you're picking up ROE, you're trying to capture that earnings machine capability of the firm. And then the third key factor that we focus in on is relative PE, which I would call it a, a valuation multiple. And, you know, keep in mind when I started in the industry, you know, that was the early days of, of computers. And uh, nowadays technology is brilliant. You get all the facts that you can easily like that, get a 20 year number if this company's been around that long for their average and, and normalized uh, P, relative PE multiple, how it's tended to trade relative to the market throughout its history. And that composite gives you a pretty good idea of an intrinsic value. But you do have to marry that with deep fundamental analysis because numbers alone can trick you. And management teams are definitely motivated to put their best foot forward on their financial statements and they're incentivized to do so as well. And so, you know, investors have to be cognizant of that and, and spend a fair amount of time looking at accounting practices and choices, you know, and, and it's all legal, 
there's a lot of um, um, variety of accounting choices that management team can use to demonstrate um, the results of their firm. And it's intended to give an industry group um, choice to use the most appropriate um, to describe what's going on. But like I said, there is an incentivization to put your best foot forward. So there is a, a fair amount of um, accounting um, work that needs to be done when examining uh, firms. Um, and there's also understanding the overall business and then also judging the quality of the man management. And then finally, also looking at the consistency of management over time. So by starting with a quantitative model, we're making our job um, easier because we can produce, we do produce the models weekly and look at how the names change um, throughout time. Um, but it's also very useful in market schisms where the market changes very dr dramatically, like October 19th, 1987 or 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, major market moves, um, you just immediately reprint that model and it gives you a really good sense of where you should be putting your research really fast to take advantage of that opportunity set that suddenly come out. So that's the benefit of using a model. Um, but in terms of our fundamental research, we actually, to add some rigor and discipline to it, we use a very structured questionnaire template. Um, and there's a number of sub questions underneath each one. Um, and it allows us to train new analysts. And we, we start off by using that template to help us um, do the research process and write written research reports and discuss them collectively in our team so that we can get a consensus view on a name in order to put it in the portfolio overall. So that's, you know, so first we use the quant method um, to identify what's cheap and focus our energy. Um, we write this, uh, we fill out the questionnaire template, write a research report, and then as a team collectively decide. I also have to mention that there's some stocks that don't quite fit the model, and yet you should be looking at them anyways. Like a number of um, uh, resource companies, you're better off looking at NAV and trying to find stocks trading below NAV rather than the calculation I mentioned earlier. So depending on the industry, and I think that's the beauty of active management, depending on what's going on and depending on the industry group and the fundamentals and the point in the cycle, you can use um, a lot, you can use your judgment to decide what features to really focus in on to decide what is the ultimate candidate to go into your portfolio. And I think the other major component of investing is portfolio construction. And we sit down uh, for five hours once a month um, to, to go through the portfolio and try and look, we use a number of exercises to try and look at the portfolio from multiple angles. Because in every single day, the market prices are moving and the relative positioning of stocks are moving within your portfolio and their weightings within your portfolio are moving. And from time to time, if you didn't have that discipline, you'd lose sight that a stock had become overweighted relative to its opportunity set or shrunk. 
So that's another important tool is portfolio construction, where we're sitting down and making sure that at all times the portfolio reflects our current view on what is going on overall. And so that's kind of um, captured very quickly the philosophy and the core elements of our process in terms of uh, building portfolios. So am I right that maybe you would try, you would normally sort of stay away from companies in certain sectors, like maybe, um, for example, financials might be a little bit harder to um, evaluate in that framework, tech, maybe a little bit harder to evaluate in that framework. As you mentioned, resources, you kind of need to attack from a slightly different angle. So how do you think about that in general? <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and um, here in Canada, we use what we call relative value investing. Uh, which we think is very pragmatic for the Canadian marketplace. Um, all markets are idiosyncratic. They are, they, uh, well, there's 11 gig sectors out there and no market has, you know, 9% of their portfolio in every single sector. And that's the perfect portfolio. Um, every market has um, sectors that they are, good at and they're a big part of their index and there's other sectors they're not as good at it economically and they have smaller weights in their sectors and viva la difference ricardo's law of competitive advantage suggests that what you're good at you do more of and what you're not as good at you do less of and um so part of that that relative value is um you know we we are our canada is accused of being too overweighted in financial services and resources. And because of that, we're considered a very cyclical market overall. And um, some people will say Canada is um, should be underweighted because it's too idiosyncratic. It must be, you know, a lower returning riskier market. But the, the data from Dimson, Marsh and Staunton going back over 100 years suggests that's not true. We're one of the better performing markets with lower risk. So, um, you know, we could, we could put that to rest. But as value managers, from time to time, we will be drawn to certain sectors as being extremely cheap. And if you were just drawn to the names that were cheap, you would overweight those sectors when they were super cheap, which could add a lot of risk to your portfolio, and then underweight the sectors that are very expensive. And so we adopt relative value investing, which means we try to be plus or minus 5% um, sector weights in all um, fun, uh, strategies, um, in all the sectors across the fund, in a lot of our strategies. Not all of them, but quite a few. And we find that it's very um, amenable for the Canadian marketplace because we won't be too exposed in, in commodities at, at any point in time. And, and plus or minus 5% is very constraining for the major sectors like banks and energy from time to time. And um, what we find is that it, it leads to more consistent results um, and, um, and lower risk overall. Uh, but you'll find that a deeper value manager, which follows the market, um, will from time to time have really divergent returns relative to the market. And that's not appealing to all clients. And so that's why um, a lot of our core strategies uh, focus in on, on relative value to minimize 
portfolio risk um, overall in the Canadian marketplace. So, so does the high conviction strategy then allow for a broader uh, bandwidth in the in those? Uh, uh, Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, because you know it's taking on a little bit. It's it's much more concentrated, and we are benchmark <clears throat> agnostic. Um, so we will take on more risk overall. We'll go where we really think our best ideas are. We run 10 different strategies here at Siona. So in terms of best ideas, it has to be in the other. If it's a high conviction strategy, it has to be in one of the other funds to, to be in a high conviction strategy. So we're kind of limited in what we can look at for uh, but they're all been well vetted. So it's really about what what do we find most appealing in the marketplace overall? And, and I guess the investor. That creates a little bit more opportunity. But, you know, most clients who go into high conviction strategies are well aware that they're going to have to have iron stomachs from time to time. And certainly in the last year or two, that was needed. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we all know the market has changed recently. And, um, you know, it was a little bit bouncy, the value um, opportunity coming back. But certainly since the beginning of this year, it's been much more pronounced. And, uh, you know, we've been delighted to see uh, the, the subsequent results. Yeah, you have to be prepared um, for the tracking error, I suppose. Go ahead. You know, I, I, one of the things I wanted to bring up was that, was that you know, along with the rise of, of ETFs and passive investing um, has been a rise of of systematic value or, or um, quantitative value investing, which is, which is really more of a top-down approach to um, investing in value or investing in the value segment of the market. Um, but that, I, I guess what I wanted to do was ask you, like, how would you differentiate, how does what you're doing, Kim, as an active value investor differ from what, a lot of people have come to think is value uh, at the on the mm -hmm. quantitative side, uh, because they're, they're they struck me as two very different things. You call yourself a value investor, and people investing in quantitative value strategies consider themselves investing in value. So how how do the two approaches differ in your mind? Well, you know, as active managers, you have that opportunity to really examine risk probably a lot more. Um, and you're spending more time, you know, weighing the nuances embedded in financial statements or management quality um, or consistency of returns to decide whether you're, you want to be in that name. And one of the biggest challenge for value managers is, is what's called value traps. Um, and uh, I'm not that familiar with, you know, what quant strategies do um, entirely. But I, you know, I would wonder. I would be very curious. You know, how do they deal with um, so-called value traps? You know, we know that you know we actively want to avoid stock. You know, value stocks with uh, lots of financial risk. That's a really good start in terms of. Um, avoiding real challenges um in uh value traps overall because yeah, if you're I mean, in cyclical you business with a lot of debt it's a very painful experience from time to time and that's a choice that management gets to make 
you want to avoid buying right. stocks. You want to avoid you want to avoid buying stocks that are cheap just because they're cheap. Uh, obviously, you don't want to be, which is the value trap, where where <laughs> you're you know, you're you're buying something that's cheap because it should be cheap as opposed to cheap because it, it's actually worth more than than you're able to buy it for. But um, yeah. so again, that that's a very subjective. Uh, methodology, but I think that has a lot to do with, you know, on the quantitative side, maybe that has a lot to do with the, with the sort of use of price to book as, as a, uh, as a guide, um, which in itself is, yeah. Yeah. And which is not as um, useful a tool at the moment in the marketplace as it has been. Now that may well change, but I mean, for example, early in my career, um, you could do a, you could do charts of the market. And you could do two lines around that market return, and and the upper one was um, when the mar- uh, was price to book, um, and the other and the lower one was 0.75. and you know eighty ninety percent of the time the market traded between the two. Um, so now we have the market trading, you know, significantly above book all the time, and uh, you know. It is only occasionally you get a chance to ever buy a stock trading below book overall, uh, much less so than in the past for sure. Um, so it's a different it's a different tool than it used to be for sure. Um, overall, well, I was going to ask um, if maybe you might avoid as a systematic value investor oh. some of those value traps by we can't hear you also screening for some quality factors maybe. Low leverage, low investment, low earnings variability, low market beta, um, high return on equity, that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, once you sort of screen out, let's call it what AQR might call the junk, right? Then um, you can zero in on those higher quality companies that maybe are trading cheaply. And then there's probably more work to do either on the forensic side, digging through how management chose to um, account for different items, going through the footnotes and, you know, see whether they've taken some liberties with um, certain other different accounting items. Um, so it just is a, is a function really maybe using more diverse criteria the field and then really get the microscope out and um, apply mm-hmm. some of the more forensic mm-hmm and subjective or qualitative type of rigor that you would apply as an overlay. Is that a fair yeah. uh, position? I totally agree with everything that you've said. <laughs> you know, that, 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 you know, and I would, I would call that good quality risk management as well. Um, how to avoid losses. And uh, if you're, if you're buying an index or an index like product, um, or just buying it on the surface of a couple of factors, you know, all of that very all of that variety of factors that come into play about whether you how you get off the fence and decide you know are the risk factors acceptable enough to take on this opportunity for for reward i mean that's you're you're touching on that core crux of of all investors investing but particularly value investing because when we're buying stocks they're not easy to own they're ugly you know, when we're buying them, they are so cheap. They're they've got problems. 
they've they've got challenges that's why they're inexpensive they shot themselves in the foot some way there's a cyclical problem um you know but you believe that they're going to recover from that and come back and that's why you're entering that stock overall and you're taking that chance um and you know it's through that analysis you're going to make that you're going to come to that conclusion and and put that in the portfolio and or not because there's that that precipice where you're sitting on the top and you're going i so want that reward it's so fantastic the expected return is amazing and we're getting some large cap canadian value stocks you know like manulife you know with very rich expected returns on the one side but on the other side you can scare yourself on any stock with the potential risks and how do you get off the fence and decide i'm willing to take the risk for the reward and i think i'm going to be paid for it um and that's a that's probably the one of the hardest things any fund manager does because we're all we know pretty we know very well from past experience how painful it is when you have a stock that doesn't deliver or does very poorly or doesn't do what you expect you you know you do want to avoid the the losses are very large loom very large in your psyche um so you're going to do a lot of work to make sure you're quite protected on the risk side so that you can get the reward okay I'd love to give you an opportunity, and Pierre, I'm sorry if you're also talking. I actually can't hear you. No, go ahead. Strangely, but um, I'd love to give you an opportunity to sort of um, give us an example, maybe without naming names of companies or or management, um, of where you were able to tease out some critical risk or, or potential reward information from applying some of those softer skills. Maybe it was... Um, interviewing management or um, some items that you noticed in their financial reporting or have you, but just some examples or one or maybe two examples of where that was really helpful and where maybe quantitative screens um, may have missed those. Um, well, I, I think it may not hit that one quite on the head, but you know, recently in Canada, we've had um, and and still is today, energy stocks um, were incredibly inexpensive, and the market was of was avoiding them um, because of the perception that there was um, a tremendous amount of risk out there because of um, ESG. And that a lot of global investors were avoiding um, investing in Canada and investing in Canadian energy. Um, but by doing enough um, fundamental research, we felt that the market, you know, the desire to move towards ESG was so great that had overlooked some of the challenges of getting there too fast. And that, you know, that the supply demand equation is was such as that that demand was growing um, in such a way, and that if you looked at um, the alternatives that uh, were coming upstream, they just couldn't be delivered fast enough 
for the lack of supply that eventually was going to hit the market. And um, we're starting to see elements of that showing up in the marketplace now. And we've seen a repricing of the underlying commodity and, a re and a, the, the early phases of a repricing of the, the sector overall. So that would be one of the more recent um, dramatic examples um, of that um, overall. But, you know, there's also moments when you own a stock and they've suddenly taken on um, significantly more debt and uh, you may be long that stock and you you uh, you decide that you're going to take your weighting down substantially because, you know, the risk factors are are have have changed very dramatically. Right. So sometimes you will have or your team will have maybe a of the of certain macro risks that maybe the market is mispricing and you're looking at the value of companies in a certain sector that maybe are pricing in a different range of macro outcomes than yeah. your team is yeah. anticipating and there from there there may be a substantial gap that yeah. is not revealed by simply looking at the accounting metrics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been criticized in the past for not owning some of the more expensive names in the marketplace like Valiant or more recently Shopify. And, you know, the fundamental analysis is that, you know, like more recently Shopify trading at over 300 PE multiple. You know, history suggests that, you know, the average stock has a tenure today of less than 20 years. And if you look at the top, um, 10 stocks from 2000, the market peak, you know, only two of them have ever gone back to their market cap highs from back in 2000. And, you know, the implied earnings growth embedded in very richly priced stocks are rarely delivered in the marketplace. And, and so we've, you know, we get challenged by clients when it's extremely painful, like the summer of, of 2015, when Valiant was, you know, 120% of the index return in the, in the third quarter. And, and, you know, but, you know, by not owning it by the fourth quarter and thereafter, we did extremely well by not, by, by holding our guns against the challenge. And as we're not starting to really see happening today, um, around Shopify. Shopify, I think, is a very interesting company and as a Canadian, I would love to see it thrive. I just think that the, the, the expectations for earnings growth are so high at the current PE multiple that it's history suggests that it's unlikely to be able to be sustained. And, and that's, um, that would give you an example of a, a stock today where we have a, you know, a variant view on what is going on with that stock, even though, you know, you think it's a, you know, a great business model overall. And, you know, we're shifting from maybe a growth oriented regime to a value oriented regime. Um, I think everyone on this call actually would, would benefit from, from that shift. Um, but we're also, I think, maybe on the precipice of shifting towards a more inflationary regime. I'm just wondering whether you're seeing this effect 
bubble up from sort of a bottom up analysis in your portfolio and 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 or whether you're also um trying to steer the process a little bit towards um a view that we may be entering a more inflationary cycle <laughs> well well it will it it can and does ultimately impact your um overall market PE multiple that you would apply in your overall, um, in the, the fundamental and model overall. So yeah, yeah, inflation is a big factor. And, and when I started working, um, with the model early in my career in 86, we were using the overall market PE multiple was, was more modest than it is being used, um, today because there was higher inflationary inflation back in the uh, in the eighties than we we are today, it turns out that that inflation is actually good for two key factors for Canadian investors. One is that uh, value um, is very good. Uh, excuse me, inflation is really good for value. And uh, here in Canada, Professor Asakus at um, the um, Ivy School of Business, the Ben Graham School of Business, he. Um, in conjunction with another colleague, wrote um, a great article about um, going back to the 1930s, um, rolling value versus growth and rolling three-year records, that when inflation is a mere 2.5% or better, which clearly we're in that camp today and may well be for a couple of years here, that, that value tends to outperform growth by 11% per annum. So, you know, a very good environment for value. And I think that's partly why we're starting to see value do extremely well um, as we've had an incredible inflation number. And as people have come to realize that inflation is is not temporary, but, you know, is starting to affect more permanent factors like wage growth. And it's really hard to roll back wage growth overall. So, you know, we're we're starting to look like we're in the beginning phases of inflation um, as well, since, you know, we haven't had inflation in any material way. We've had disinflation since 1981. So that's 40 years. Um, you know, we've been knowing there's going to be this paradigm pricing shift. The pendulum is swinging um, that maybe it's now. Um, and uh, so it's changing the valuation in that direction. The other one is uh, looking back to the, from the 1970s, there was five periods of inflation in Canada. The National Bank did that survey and um, showed that Canada did much better than the U.S. in terms of being a decent inflation hedge. Um, and so we, we are of the opinion that, you know, the Canadian market is likely to do well going forward partly because it's so inexpensive and has an above average dividend yield. And the Canada tends to be a better inflation hedge. And you could sort of argue almost from a fundamental perspective, being more resource commodity orientated than the U.S., that we would benefit um, from inflation. Um, And and certainly when you look back in the 50s, the post-war era, when uh, there was inflation, Canada did outperform the U.S. Um, so those factors coming into play um, to the benefit of value managers overall. So that's fairly encouraging 
plus uh, you know you know the the three factors together suggesting it's um it's uh it's good for Canadian value managers in particular I guess it's also uh, you know adding on top of that you have those large growth companies who have dominated this growth oriented market who benefit from the disinflationary side of it. And yes. now you've got on top of the, you know, the, the potential, uh, the, the valuation effect on inflation, but then you've got the money flows that come from those growth investors who will, you know, potentially be disappointed over the next number of quarters and years. And those money flows are going to probably head towards where money gets treated best as money does people start to realize that those discounted rates of growth going into the future when you increase the you know discount rate all of a sudden that lowers those expectations and 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 now you're headed to areas where you're seeing resource influences that increase the expectations coming from very low multiples right so it, it seems like the table might be set for you know, hopefully another decade or two of, of this uh, reversion for value back to uh, trend and growth back to trend. Exactly. When you look back in history, particularly the, the recovery in the early 40s, which as well was a movement from a long-term disinflationary period to the beginning of an inflationary period, yeah. you had a very dramatic turn back from growth to value. And the first three to five years was one of the best um, outperformance periods. And you've seen it um, as well in, in the past, in 2000, this great comeback for value after, you know, when the, the, the high-flying um, tech stocks, the dot-com stocks came down. Um, you know, so yes, I agree with yeah, and, the, and I think the 40s are, are a particular interesting time because it's not just inflation, it's inflation volatility. So there's there's a base rate of inflation, but then there's a volatility around that, which since 1990 has been insanely low. We have had inflation volatility running at about 1.3%. Uh, AHL managers have written a paper on this, whereas inflation volatility pre-1990 was at about 4.8%. Now, this is not inflation it's the inflation of volatility so how much is going up and down yeah. and the surprises and what's so interesting about this 40s to 50s period where we were coming out of world war ii and price controls were being removed what was happening is you had these spikes in inflation it wasn't like the 70s where it was this just increasing sort of inflation airy pressure it was a spike and then an abatement or a, a sort of a new level and then a spike and a, and a new level and, you know, so you get this inflationary volatility that's at play, as well as just the base rate of inflation, which I, I think has some really interesting implications for changes in leadership when it comes to, you know, sort of growth versus value as an example. That's really, that's, that's really interesting, actually. That's, mm -hmm. that's like, uh, that's really, a, you know, I've, I've been hearing a lot about the 40s analog for, for today, but that's a really interesting uh, point is uh, mike which is that we're, we're seeing the same kind of inflation volatility today aren't we with the supply shocks and the you know it, it's yeah. it's uh it's a really you know uh, strong echo 
Yeah. And as Kim points out, right, that wages don't regress. I mean, once you go up yeah. in wages, that's that's not an easy thing to say, oh, we're going to cut your wages today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that dog's not going to hunt. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, uh, Kim, it's Amazing. been a an absolute pleasure to have you on. And yeah. I think we have covered just an enormous uh, swath of topics from women in investing to value to the current circumstances. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm wondering if you can also let people know where they can find you if you're on any kind of social media, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter, or your your website. Yeah, we're we're on all of the above, of course. And Siona.ca uh, um, is uh, how you can get to us uh, more directly um, overall. So thank you for that opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Kim. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Great questions. Great fun.